Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word of mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the podcast today is John Collings, Australia's most established, recognised and published architectural photographer. John has been shooting the majority of Australia's significant buildings since starting his career in the 1960s, and it's a great privilege to have him on the podcast to share his unique perspective on the history of architectural photography and where the profession finds itself today. In this episode, John and I spoke about how architectural photography has changed over the span of his career, both in terms of how it's commissioned, produced and distributed. We looked at the lessons he uses from his early work in advertising photography to sell buildings in a way that architects can't on their own. We spoke about John's critique of the current trends in architectural photography and his concerns about the popular obsession with pretty pictures that don't fully describe the building and the architect's ideas. John shared his predictions for the future of the architectural media. And finally, we spoke about why architects should take a longer term or historical view of their architectural photography and approach it in a way that will stand the test of time. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Gollings. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Dave, thank you. It's uh, an almost unique experience. But uh, you, you mentioned that you've been on a, this isn't your first podcast. You, you've been there and done it, dur- what, during COVID? During COVID, a New York photographer friend who actually was uh-huh. one of my assistants years ago decided to do some podcasts on influential uh, photographers that he'd known. So that was one of them. Yep. And how did you find the experience the first time? Anything I need to be watching out for? Uh, no, that was done on video and the uh. lighting w- was abysmal. I actually <laughs> had to get him to send me instructions on microphones and lighting. Uh, so okay. I've, actually, I've moved upstairs in my studio and I'm lit with nice soft window light now. So. <laughs> and of course, you, <laughs> it's one of the first ones we're not recording video, so yeah. I'm sorry to let you down. But um, <laughs> anybody listening will just have to assume how well lit John's looking at the moment. So um, that'll be great. So, uh, John, we'll probably start with a little bit of an overview, just in terms of your career and your experience. And you've given this breakdown of your years in the business probably a few times before, but. I guess just to give our listeners both nationally and overseas a sense of 
who you are and what and and what your sort of career has looked like. Maybe just take us back to kind of the beginning of how you started in architectural photography. Okay, the the very beginning goes back to when I was nine years old, and um, a chap who worked for my father saw me playing with the family camera and he knew a bit about photography and had a little dark room at home and he was instrumental in encouraging me to shoot my first roll of film and to process it and he taught me how to hand process a roll of 120 film and I became addicted to the whole nuts and bolts of photography but my father was a builder and wanted me to do architecture and I was going to be the architect in the family building firm and that's what I did at Melbourne University in the 60s. Um, by sheer coincidence, I'd gotten to know quite a few advertising photographers socially, and one offered me a, a temporary job in a fashion studio to assist a guy called Peter Goff, who had worked with Norman Parkinson in London. And so Peter took me on as an assistant, untrained, self-taught photographer, but in a studio that had a colour lab, so I could see the whole process from beginning to end. And that led to the studio then deciding to graduate me and send me out with a folio. And in a sort of lucky way, I picked up some very big international accounts um, like Australia Post, um, National Australia Bank, Sitmar, Tourist Lines, Marlborough Cigarette Account. Um, and I was about 22 years of age, so was incredibly nervous shooting those jobs, didn't quite know what I was doing, but I seemed to manage to always come back with, I suppose, what you'd call the defining shot. Um, the, the shop that made a great 24-sheet poster uh, or a great full-page ad in the press. So I have been incredibly lucky and I've managed through photography and architecture to have this incredibly diverse career that for the first 20 years was largely based on fashion. Yeah. And I think that taught me, that gave me um, an approach into architectural photography against my superiors in those days were Max Dupain and Mark Strizig and Wolfgang Sievers. So I needed an entree and that entree was A, my use of colour and my use of flash and bringing a sort of advertising industry approach to constructing an architectural photograph and I'm basically still doing that to this day. Yeah, I've, I've, got, your, I've got your book behind me on the shelf and it, and it opens up with a quote from uh, Julius Shulman talking uh, about him saying, I'm a merchandiser, I sell architecture better and more directly and more vividly than the architect does uh, and just goes on basically talking about his role as a photographer, this sense of merchandising. And I think it's an interesting kind of way to open up your book. And is that is that sort of, do you share Julius's perspective there in terms of you're coming from that advertising space and thinking about architecture in that different way? Yes, I do. I knew Julius fairly well. I used to visit him in Los Angeles. He was incredibly generous. He actually taught me how to process four or five sheet film wow. uh, in a tray. And I was seeing him at the same time I was seeing Ansel Adams. I, I sort of would rock up in America with all the chutzpah in the world and just ring these guys up and, and found they were, more than Australians, they were incredibly welcoming and, and I learned a lot from those two greats and from Maggie Weston, Edward Weston's wife. So I had a pretty interesting entree into the world of architectural photography via advertising and I still, well, I've, I've got a, a few purposes when I take a photo. One is to fully describe the building the other one is to take the least number of photographs possible, ideally one exterior and one interior, because that's all that people want at the end of the day. 
And I'm now, well, I guess I've always been building a narrative. I came in in an era of postmodernism uh, where there's a, for the first time there was a, a lot of theory went into the buildings and I was trying to find ways of demonstrating those theories, which is why I was doing flash at night and stripping kangaroos into pictures and um, generally being a, a thorough pest in the profession. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Farrelly once criticised me as that person who can only take lurid purple skies. And uh, so that, that was a take on, the, certainly in Sydney, the, their reaction to my colour photography. But I've um, gone on, I think, to bring a fairly considered uh, approach to photographing buildings. And I guess the proof is that most of my clients uh, go on to win awards. Not that I cause that, that you've got to have a good building to start with, but the, when they make a presentation, it's got to stand out and they've got to get a visit from the jury and yeah. that's my job. Yeah, when you said that you were in advertising and you had this ability to bring back the, the hero image or the standout image and then you mentioned you're trying to take the minimal number of images, one exterior, one interior, because that's all you need. I'm, I'm sort of sensing a connection there that you're kind of interested in there only needs to be one or two images that really grab people, right? It's not about here's 25 images of every single corner of the building, but it's like are we actually having an impact? Are people paying attention? Yeah. Is that sort of part of what it's about in your approach? You, you have summed it up exactly. Um, and that was crystallised years ago by Harry Seidler. When Max died, Harry started giving me a lot of his work and I remember once we were photographing, um, I think, the um, the Waverley Civic Centre down here in Melbourne, and I'd taken what I thought was a really beautiful composition, um, and, of course, we pulled a four or five Polaroid in those days, and I showed Harry the Polaroid, and he said, that's a complete heap of crap. He said, the one really fundamental thing you've failed to do is to show the whole building. He said, you must never take an architectural photograph of a part of a building. He said, it might go on for another 100 yards down the hill. Um, and I've never forgotten that rebuke um, and I've made it a fundamental part of my first searching for an image that not only now do I have to have the whole building in but I want some context as well so that the viewer can make an adequate assessment of, of the building's fit for purpose and that's a very, very important part of my uh, documentation. It's interesting because it these days, you know, the culture of what people are looking for in their photos, uh, clients or architects I work with these days might be complaining if they don't get 20 photos or 30 photos because they're thinking we need a lot of stuff for Instagram, we need a lot of stuff for for the website and and maybe maybe they're missing a missing the point there in a certain way, right? Because you're talking about you don't you don't need all of that. No, you certainly don't. I I know that the younger photographers now do what I've never done. They actually go and do a pre-shoot, with, often with their iPhone, and they'll take 50 or 60 images of what they think are compositions within the building. And then they go and show those to the architect and say, okay, you choose the 12 or 20 shots that you want. And then they go back and replicate them, mm. often complaining that for whatever reason of weather or they can't actually replicate their own snapshots. Um, and I just think that they're really misleading their clients. They're taking money for the photographer to make his own artful pictures, but they're not actually respecting the architecture. 
And so let's maybe dive in a bit on that. So respecting the architecture in terms of in show, showing it in its entirety, like what's the difference, I guess, between the two things, making pictures for yourself as a photographer versus making pictures for the architecture and the client? What's the, what's the subtle difference there, I suppose? Well, the, the topic is crucial, as you just announced it. When student photographers come to me with their folio, they generally have found an artful picture of line and shadow generated by the building. So that's a picture of their ability as photographers to recognise a composition, but it has nothing Mm. to do with describing the building. And that's fundamental to my critique of the younger photographer who might do a pretty shot through a doorway with a slash of light on it, but it actually doesn't show the architecture. It doesn't show the planning. It doesn't show the form. It doesn't show the structure. It's just pretty. And it's wasting time because it's not adequately showing as much as it could in one picture. I try to take what I think is an efficient photograph, and an efficient photograph shows the most of the building in the least number of shots. So that's that's yeah. my critique. And I have no objection to the photographs that they take, and I, I won't name examples, but they're not doing their clients justice. Yeah. They're, they're very pretty pictures, and they're using techniques that are absolutely fine and valid and interesting. Yep. Some of them I did myself 20 years ago, yep. shooting, on, uh, shooting on film and scanning it and then working the shots up in Photoshop. So there's a lot of approaches, but they don't know how to get the whole building in the picture, that's all. Yeah. And we'll we'll definitely come back to the next generation. But it's interesting in terms of when you're not showing the building, you're not showing how it's put together, what the ideas are. In what way do you think that that lets down the, the architect? I guess because they're not getting their ideas, but they're just not communicating the value of what they've actually done, right? That's the problem, isn't it? Or what's what do you see that the sort of the issue is there? Most people don't see most buildings either because they're overseas or they're in the country or they just don't get there or they don't spend long around a building to appreciate it. So my role is actually is a standing for the actual building. I mean, one could joke that when I finish photographing, you may as well burn it down because the, the <laughs> photographs are going to be more valuable. But that is my pictures actually do stand for the building and, and they are the only way people are going to appreciate it. So I want to describe the architectural theory behind it, the materials, its response to light, its aesthetic and its form, and at the same time it has to be a memorable composition Mm. in order that people um, can recall it. Mm. So there's a lot going on in that single hero picture. When when we're talking about your starting your career, well, not starting it, but that period that you worked, the postmodernist period, and you were, you know, making sure the kangaroos and the seagulls and those sorts of things were making Mm. their guest appearances and (laughs) things like that, but talking about expressing those ideas or what was going on in that postmodern work, what, what do you think these days architecture and, and the work that architects are doing, what, what do you think the, the ideas are that are there at the moment that you sort of pick up on and go, this is kind of what they're trying to get out into the world? I know it's a broad generalisation <laughs> to make, but just I guess like what are those themes today? What, what does that kind of feel like for you? The large themes are the generators of design, which is by and large parametrics it's using computer analysis and artificial intelligence to determine not necessarily particularly valid qualities, but uh, architects are using parametrics to determine a shape in the absence of following traditional criteria like uh, classicism um, or, or you know working in the Gothic or the Romanesque style. They're now searching for a rationale for a shape. 
and some of those rationales are completely useless. Other ones could quite validly be responsive materials to the landscape. So I'm, I have to keep abreast of those uh, theoretical approaches and abreast of what the schools are teaching in order to understand and get a grasp of what I might be able to lock onto to describe the building. You know, in, in the business of your photography or in, in your business, I mean, is there, when we're talking about all buildings kind of being a bit, they're just buildings are being buildings sort of thing, are there particular projects that you kind of look for or, or maybe even certain projects that you might avoid or not take on as a project for certain reasons? Like what's your criteria, your filter that, <laughs> that you look at and go, yeah, that's, that's it. That's a, that's a John Gollings building right there. I'm, I'm keen as to shoot it versus something where you think, oh, maybe not such a great fit. Uh, it comes down to what I would call connoisseurship and I've spent my life trying to work out what a good building is and I've only got halfway there. One sensibility that I have learned is that of time. Uh, I remember, again, Harry Seidler saying you can't really judge a building under 25 years of age um, and, and maybe Harry would arrogantly say but and sometimes it should be 500 years old. I've learned to understand the difference between the fashionable, the immediate grab and um, there's probably a lot of Melbourne firms who are very good at the the immediate grab and the yep. the um, the building that you first see published and you think, boy, I've just got to photograph that. But on reflection, you apply that criteria of time and you say, is this building going to have legs in 25 years' time? Is it going to win an award for uh, having stood up and paved the way for new design thinking or is it just a fashionable gimmick? And I'm still learning that distinction. But I think as I get older, I'm very conscious of the fashionable and, and whether it's going to stand up. The other thing, because I've spent my life photographing what I call dead cities, which are great cities like Angkor Wat and Hampi in India, who have lost their colour, they never had glass, they, they're mostly grey stone buildings, um, you come to appreciate the raw form of a building. And so if I see a, a very brightly coloured building now, I mentally strip the colour off before I make a decision about whether it's a good building because I can be seduced like anyone by the colour. Mm. And um, there, there's a lot of examples in Melbourne of, of colour um, not, not standing up in the face of good technology. At the same time, I'm a bit like a doctor, I suppose. You, you, you don't, um, don't criticise your patients. You try to make them better. No, and that's interesting because I listening to you speak earlier about how you almost have a more documentary philosophy about your work in terms of capturing the building and then you could burn it down afterwards, but the, <laughs> but the building has been completely recorded in, in this really high-fidelity way. But at the same time, if things aren't right or there's mistakes or there's unintended things going on, you, you don't you don't have any issue going in and, and, and making some changes there so that the bet the building is a better representative of what that original idea is right you've stated it perfectly I mean one example is um, the exit sign that's over every doorway and mm. sometimes in, in a quite beautifully lit room th that green glow is just annoying so I have no problem taking out the exit sign that's a, a typical example Ansel Adams taught me about dodging and burning where you 
control the distribution of light and dark across an image so that your eye falls to the middle and doesn't fall off the edges of the page. Mm. We do a lot of that still in Photoshop. And now there's not a single photograph goes out that hasn't been constructed from multiple frames, either frames of different exposure or different light or frames of different people moving through the shop where I can pick and choose not only the perfect bit of clothing but the perfect slightly blurred action um, and their position within the frame. So we construct every single shot. Mm, mm. And, and that includes even bracketing from a, a multi-exposure drone shot. So we put a lot of post-production into our work. Yeah, and, and you said no one's ever complained about it, but have you identified that there's possibly a line where when it comes to editors or when it comes to awards juries or whatever who might be actually looking at the building in person? Like, is the, do you sort of sense that there's a boundary there that, or a line in the sand where you go, okay, at this point we probably need to leave in some element to this that's off in the real world just, for the, just because it's so glaringly there? <laughs> yes, I'll give you an example. Well, it's been um, Diane Sudjik in London when he was editor of Blueprint magazine alerted me to the fact that you could be overly professional. And he, when he was then editor of Domus magazine uh, for quite a few years, and he alerted me to the fact that in Europe at that stage, and this is really through the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, there was an anti-professional photography movement mm. and clients were being asked to get a point-and-shoot camera and reshoot their buildings because the viewer or the judges felt that that was more real. And mm. I'm very conscious of that. It happened during COVID. Um, I think in Victoria they asked the architects to reshoot their buildings on their iPhone because they weren't getting a visit because they just didn't trust the professional photograph. And I do, I am sympathetic to that point of view. And it's interesting that the, the angle of an iPhone typically is that of a 35mm lens and, and that ironically is the perspectival view of a lot of the younger photographers because they've grown up on the iPhone snapshot and they, yep. like, they understand that perspective, whereas yep. I'm... Uh, you know, famously a wide-angle queen um, <laughs> using a lot of different optics to uh, to fit my building in. So I have a, an understanding of that new aesthetic, um, but I just I can't bring myself to do it. No, I wasn't aware that that was something that happened during COVID. That's pretty unbelievable. So mm. they were... They weren't able to visit the project, so they sent the architects out to shoot sort of the the proof of this building actually. How does this building really look? Take in it its, on your phone. Yes, in its ordinary light, and and yes, and that was an issue. And I'm look, I'm sympathetic to it because yes, I I do want the a jury to come and yep. visit a building because they see an interesting photograph, but I am conscious that a, a beautifully made photograph is intimidating to people when they're not sure whether they're being tricked. And, of course, mm. a well-made architectural photo photograph is a trick. It, mm. it, it's not representing reality. It's representing a design idea and an approach. So mm. there is a, there's a distinction when you're simply trying to describe your building to a, a peer group. Mm. Absolutely. As distinct from a, a magazine. Yeah, I understand. Well, it's interesting. The, the way that 90s trend popped up where suddenly the sort of the more honest point-and-shoot photo was in vogue for a minute or two, mm. then it went back to professional. COVID aside, do you think there's any other 
um, major shifting like that that could possibly occur in the future where all of a sudden the industry just flips itself upside down and goes architectural photography almost must be done some other way because of some possible yes. rationale like do you, do you, <laughs> yes, yeah there's a, there's a short answer because every student uh comes and asks me what the future is and as much as i can detect it's the future is motion pictures yeah everyone wants a video and I'm so obsessed with getting the perfect composition that for me, the minute you start waving a camera around, you you destroy the composition and the power of that memorable image. However, um, because of social media, um, a a little five-second grab on Instagram that happens to have someone walking through it or a cloud moving or a tram going past adds to the veracity of it and is a new way of doing it. So, yes, the first is motion. The next would be um, artificial rendering of buildings and walkthroughs and some of mm. those technologies that I don't think the computers are actually powerful enough to really handle yet. But mm. certainly video is the, the big move and I'm, like everyone, is doing more and more video, especially drone video. So that's the short answer to uh, where it's heading. I'm interested in looking back to the 60s, 70s, the, okay. the earlier days of your career. Not that yeah. I mean, challenging to kind of go all the way back there, but I'm just interested maybe in this bigger picture idea of architectural photography. Did it play a different role back then to what it does today? What function did it serve uh, not only at the beginning of your career, but also Julius Schulman's career, others how is it different to the setup today where architecture practice of any size finishes a project, gets a set of photos, sends them to the media, puts them on social media? Obviously, no social media back then, but what what, what, what function did the photos serve back, back then? I think because there was no social media or internet or anything else, um, there was no electronic distribution. So, I always ran a full-service lab. I employed a film processor who was doing colour and egg and E6. I had two full-time colour and black and white printers in a darkroom. I had big colour processing machines. Um, the end of the job was the print order. And, mm. um, I mean, th- there would be hundreds of thousands of my 10-8 glossies that were put out. Um, and the big difference was that they had to be published in a magazine to be of any use. Um, mm. And some of them, of course, went into the daily press uh, when they announced a, a new building. But largely it was the role of um, the great magazine era of the 60s, um, you know, from Twen doing fashion to Domus magazine and, and all the English ones, AJ, the whole lot. You had to be published. And to get published, you had to have really beautifully well-made photographs and a set of large format transparencies. Mm. So a shoot was totally different. It was on four, largely a four or five camera. You shot um, multiple exposures of sheet film because if you wanted to hand out a set to Architecture Australia and another set to an overseas magazine, you needed multiple sets or you had to pay for duplication and you had to have beautifully made black and white prints. Um, so the, the whole business was fundamentally different. Um, mm. Architects were required to submit 12 slides for their jury presentations Mm -hmm. so you found yourself with a 35 mil nikon outfit taking the slides Mm. and then the four or five camera would do the transparencies and you had to get the exposure right because you couldn't bracket your exposures and Mm -hmm. then you had to put a roll of um, black and white through and you would 
typically do a red filter and maybe a green filter or a blue filter to get different renditions of sky and building. Mm. And then, of course, on colour, you had to carry a colour temperature meter and do colour corrections in camera. Yeah. So it was technically quite tricky. The American yes. magazines that I worked for said I had to allow an hour per shot for an interior and at least half an hour per shot for an exterior. You couldn't yeah. do an architectural photograph under that. Now, of course, you're just belting it out. Um, it's yeah. a fundamentally different approach. Yeah. So, so you took, you got eight pictures a day, and you know yeah. that might be an hour's work for me now. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. So it was primarily for magazines. That was kind of the main magazines and then obviously trying to win some architecture awards as well. So were architectural photographers, and not just even in the earlier days of your career, but I'm just really interested in how this has maybe shifted over time from your point of view to today. But it feels like it's fairly ubiquitous at the moment. Anybody who wants to put their work out there, no matter how small the practice is, it could just be one person in a you know, in a co-working space as an architecture practice, but they're still going out and investing in proper architectural photography. Was that also the norm looking back in the past or is that something that's more of a modern thing that everybody gets professional architectural photography for their finished projects? I'd almost say it's the very opposite. Um, nowadays, oh. my clients are taking their own photos. What? Really? Yeah, yeah, they're not getting professional photography. That's the fundamental difference. In the 60s, they couldn't they couldn't match the equipment. I mean, they could maybe get a, a Nikon. Harry Seidler had a Leica with a perspective-correcting mm. lens. Not many architects were that interested. Um, they would do a, a point-and-shoot coverage, yeah. and then they got the professional photographer. Now I'm fighting the young backpacker student who's, you know, basically working for nothing. He's, he's working for lunch money to the architect who, with the current iPhones and shooting raw, can match any lens and optics that I've got um, and can get a very professional-looking photograph. Yeah. So a lot of my clients are taking their own test photos anyway and showing them to me. Um, Yeah. And and those shots are perfectly good. John Clements just today on Instagram did a shot of his award-winning house which I photographed, but he keeps shooting it. Um, the, the shots are, quite frankly, as good as mine. Yeah. It, it's, I can't say it's dispiriting. It's exciting to see. But, um, uh, yeah, there's more photographers chasing less work for less money now than ever before. Really? Yeah. Wow. I would have, geez, I would have thought it was <laughs> the other way around. That's unbelievable. No. no. I think what still gets published and what still wins awards is not, the iPhone photo, right? Like you're not going to see an iPhone photo on the cover of Houses magazine, I, I no. wouldn't expect. No, you won't. But, but you are, you're talking about how general day-to-day clients are producing their own images and that's for a lot of that end purpose of their photography, they're getting by on their own, you know, taking care of themselves. That's yes. interesting. Yeah, they are. Or they've got a young student in their office that's, a nifty photographer, or they're doing video, and the, and all the youngies in the offices can edit the video. Yeah. So, it's it's spread around a lot, and um, yeah. yes, by and large, 
social media is what's ruling it and and the quality Mm. issues there are very different. Mm. Yeah. I'm still sort of in the school of thought that the architecture media is really important. (laughs) Yeah. But do you think that maybe a matter of time before really the digital just plays the full role, we just don't have the printed stuff anymore? Yeah, it's a matter of months to a couple of years. Right, okay. The the economics of, of paper cost and printing and supply chain issues and distribution is killing yep. the publishers. Yeah, and yep. they're, they're going to go online. And yes, look, there's some online forums that produce a better image, but of course you've got to mm. pay for them. Sometimes I get lousy and don't want to sign up for the online magazines. But um, mm. ultimately, mm. I'll get, I guess I'll have to. It feels like the way that the publications are sort of um, evolving with the times is that some are heading in the direction of awards competitions becoming their business model and others are thinking more about e-commerce and YouTube and stuff like that. They're, they're thinking more about video content and seems to be a bit of a fork in the road. So I guess the, uh, I guess the awards programs are going to still be alive and well for a while for everyone to enter their photos into. But I wonder how things will change. I mean, you got me really interested now talking about months to years. I feel like you might have some inside knowledge on something, but... <laughs> Only from talking to publishers who say it's getting harder and harder to get stuff out. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, Architecture Australia has sort of has been fundamental to my career. Yes. Um, and I'm on their editorial committee and mm. they're even changing now. It used to be that every, well, it would come out every month. Um, they put in the best buildings that produced. Now they're doing it on social issues. You mm. know, there'll be a sustainability issue and there'll be a materials issue and, so it's it, even the, the sensibilities to what good architecture is is changing. Mm-hmm. I raised the question about, I suppose, the way that architects engage photographers in the past and has that changed? I suppose also interested because, you know, there seems to be, there's the Architecture Australia sort of world, which is the larger sort of civic stuff, public stuff, towers, uh, stadiums, you know, the, the the stuff that gets you out in the helicopter or out with the drones. But then there's the the houses side of it, the private residential, which is such a big segment. Private residential is such a huge segment of the architecture media yeah. and it's a huge part of social media. It's almost perceived, I think, that there's a bit of a gap between those two kind of types. They're two very, very different categories from one another. But i just like your thoughts on how, how they sort of sit from your perspective as a photographer. I'm guessing it's kind of all, it's all the same stuff, right? Like you wouldn't see it as this two, these two different areas, would you? Um, no, I, like most photographers, love shooting um, a, a great house because mm. the house design has been the backbone of most architects' careers beginning. Um, you know, typically the, the, the mother's house that the, the parents would have given a new graduate um, is loaded up with every idea they can think of, um, but they're fantastic to photograph. By the same token, they're small firms and they don't have much budget, so yeah. I have always made a practice of um, looking after young beginners and giving them very cheap rates because I, in turn, get a great building for my archive and, yeah. and uh, my own publicity Whereas the big commercial buildings are the province of, you know, three or four days on the job with assistance and all expenses paid, and that's a totally different kettle of fish. But So mm. I do distinguish between residential. I, I think it's been yeah. the, the backbone of some of my best work and still love it. But equally, uh, young architects like to work with young photographers, like, like to work with their contemporaries. Mm. So mm-hmm. um, 
there's a shift that I have to deal with commercially as well. You have to go and make friends with more young architects, hey? You do your best, yes. <laughs> yeah, out there networking, yeah, I yeah. understand. But that, but that's interesting that when, you, when you're talking, you're saying it's a whole different kettle of fish, the, the larger projects, obviously, just the production, yeah. the assistance, like just a sense of maybe the differences a shoot where you're going in and shooting a proper residential house versus going and shooting Optus Stadium in Perth or something like that, just the, the sense of the scale. Look, I've shot all the biggest buildings in the country, I suppose, from Parliament yeah. House down. You you need a sort of bravado and, and a certain confidence in your technical ability as well, plus the, the vision to deal with, you know, something that's the scale of a city. You know, I feel very competent to to do that and I do it very quickly too and I've not really had any of those major jobs ever backfire on me it would be easier to to miscalculate on a house I think because there's so many different Mm. ways to photograph a a small object but the big ones um, they almost tell you where to take the photograph from yeah but it is fundamentally different and you need assistance and you need cooperation and sometimes you've just you know, to get all the lights turned on in a block of flats to do a great dusk shot is a mammoth effort. Yeah. So, uh, yes, you, you don't want to mess those jobs up. I've, I've seen a few shoots pop up with your projects where you might have potentially partnered up with another photographer on, on, on a shoot here or there. Do you, am, I think, am, am I correct in that? Has there been a couple of projects where maybe you've shot one portion, somebody else has shot another? Yeah, uh, yes, it has, but it's, it's not come from the way you think. It's the architect booking two, two photographers to work at the same time because they think they're going to get two different aesthetics that they can give mm. out to different magazines. Mm. And that sort of works. Mm. So, yes, there have been many jobs when I've worked um, with, you know, mates like Peter Bennett, who would be as busy as me. Uh, and we both turn up on the same job and we do in fact find different angles it's been quite yeah. interesting or, or sometimes you're taking virtually the same one other times they'll take the same shot but in different light so mm. and then there's, there's a lot of ways to skin the fish but yes yep. you're correct and sometimes the architect will have a quite good photographer in their firm a lot of the sydney firms have got basically photographers on staff who are yep. actually junior architects they will go out and, and take their own perfectly good shots on a digital camera and you'll see them get run. You know, surprise the other day I did a big coverage of a building in Sydney and one of the shots was by someone who just worked for the firm. Yeah. And, you know, he got published and, you know, it was a perfectly fine photograph. Now, if it was me, if, if I was turning up on site and I look around and then there's another three photographers standing around all competing over the same angle, like some surfers trying to catch a wave, um, yeah. uh, I would probably be thinking maybe too many chefs in the kitchen. But I could see why, why architects might be interested to hedge their bets by getting multiple photographers or just, as you said, go for a couple of they're, – they're on the fence about one aesthetic or another. So, hey, let's get both. Um, yeah. And then we've got options that we can play around with. Do you think it's um, do you think that's a prudent strategy that makes sense and you sort of see it from their point of view? Or what what do you think? Are there any down un, unexpected, you know, downsides, that sort of thing? Uh, there's no real downsides for the architect, except it's costing them money. Um, mm. but famously some very good friends who are architects in Sydney have they feel compelled to book three or four photographers. Some of them famously really like to see a photographer take those 
shots that I'm critical of, the, the, the close-up pretty details. Yeah. Um, because they're very confident of their own design work, so they're just interested in someone finding a, an, an angle. Um, so, yes, it happens. Um, yeah. And I've, I mean, look, I could mimic those different looks, but it, yeah. it's a waste of time. I'd prefer to give them what I think is, is yeah. my best. Do shot. what you do best. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you've been you've been dying to get into it since the beginning of our chat, Joe, so let's, so let's do it. I think I am interested in this idea of, some of some of the things that become fashionable from time to time in architectural photography, like you know, trends come along all the time. You see that in every industry. Things become fashionable for a little bit of time, and everyone chases after them, and then they move on to the next thing. And you've touched on it a couple of times, I guess, this sense that they're not really fully documenting the project. They're going after those those interesting little vignettes and details that make an interesting or pretty photo that that do that sort of thing. Is that? But maybe dig into it without without us kind of getting into anyone individually because I I don't want to get in trouble or make any enemies. But um, I'm just at the start of my career, so I can't I can't possibly be you know making enemies. <laughs> um, so yeah, but 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 I guess like just your thoughts on that. Um, you must have seen a lot of kind of um, aesthetic flavors come and go over time. And and do you think now's like what what's your sort of take on on what architectural photography and architects uh, are kind of doing at the moment i i simply think they're probably out of competition um they're looking for an angle that, that yep. they can hang their hat on and in some cases that angle is um a choice of lenses um mm-hmm. there are guys that won't use anything uh, wider than the telephoto because that's giving them a particular look. Um, mm-hmm. Others are sh- going back to analogue and shooting on film, on medium format cameras, um, shooting on colour negative and scanning it and then manipulating the tonal range of the colour neg. There is others who will only work in overcast days mm-hmm. and I'm not averse to that. I, <laughs> I personally hate blue sky and green grass. There's others only shoot with the light, whereas I shoot against the light. But largely it's composition. They are finding beautiful compositions, uh, a look through a doorway, a look into a piece of light. They're pretty pictures, but my critique is that they're pictures of the photographer. They're not pictures of the building. That's all. And I think that is a fashionable movement, partly because some of these guys simply don't have the money to buy enough lenses. So it it comes down to that. Yeah, yeah, expensive wide-angle and tilt-shift lenses and things like that. They're not cheap. And to do the big buildings that I cover, you do need a a fairly vast um, optical array and I've got it all and a lot of other skills to boot. So, And and a good understanding of the aesthetics of perspective. We do a lot of counteracting wide-angle perspective in the camera and things like that. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm getting the shot but it doesn't look distorted. Yeah. This is, I guess, an opportunity to kind of speak to architects about this because they obviously look at some of those images and they're, and they're drawn to them as just singular. You know, they like the image and they're not really necessarily really liking the building necessarily. They're, they're liking the image and they like the way that image looks and that overcast day and, and sort of the look and the feel. But I guess it's kind of taking a step back from that and, and thinking about why are we making these images, right? It's not just to get that to get the, the the glimpse of through the doorway, sort of as you put it, mm. I guess to sort of summarise it or in, in a nutshell, you know, what's the alternative? Remind remind architects what that alternative <laughs> <laughs> well, is and kind of looks like. 
the alternative is a commercial alternative that um, an architect and a photographer, I guess, is only as good as their last job. And if you don't get good photographs, which then lead to awards, you don't get the publicity, you don't get the publication, you don't get the exposure, and you don't get the work. It's as simple as that. We're both in the business of drawing attention to ourselves and getting publicity. And architects in particular, until they're old enough and they've got such a a body of work, um, they need the recommendation of a well-published building. It's as simple as that. And that's how young architects start and how young photographers start. Yeah. And do you think that jurors and editors, because they're so experienced and they have uh, such a well-trained eye, they're looking at that photography more critically. They're not looking at that the doorway shot and, and falling for kind of the superficiality of that sort of image. They're going, hang on, I'm actually trying to understand this building. What's really going on here? What are the ideas here? And that's where that there's that possibility that an image might kind of fall short in their eyes and limit the publishability or the awards of the project? Yeah, I've seen, well, I've seen examples very recently at some of the awards presentations where a building has won an award despite the photography because yep. the architect has made such a, uh, an interesting presentation that the jurors have said, let's go and visit this building and then they get there and discover it's a ripper and mm-hmm. they pick up all the awards but it's despite the the photograph. Mm. Uh, in other cases, there is, as I mentioned before, that suspicion that a well-made architectural photograph is actually tricking them, mm. but they will still go and visit anyway because they have to make their own mind up whether the, the photographers really tricked them or it is a brilliant building with a great photograph. So it's, yep. um, you'll get a visit regardless if the building has a, a hint of something good. Yeah. You touched on it that what was driving architects to look at other options in this area was you were saying that they wanted to stand out, they wanted to have a point of difference. Could you speak more to that a little bit just in terms of like you're, you're sensing that that's what they're thinking about when they see a more stylized image, they're, they're kind of thinking, oh, there's that's something that's going to make our work look different. But how should they really be thinking about it from from that standpoint? They, they do want to stand out. They do want to have a different angle, as you put it, or do they? But but if they do, you know, what's, what's a better way to go about it in your eyes? Well, I think their dilemma is that, yes, they want to explore different photographic approaches, but the gamble is that having commissioned that photographer, that that photographer actually takes the pictures they really need. Mm. Um, and I think there's... Um, in the end, it comes down to composition. It doesn't matter what your style is. You know, you can have your fogged-in highlights or your mm-hmm. un- under-saturated colours. <laughs> but finally, it's the composition that really counts. Mm. And those photographers that don't have sufficient lenses to actually photograph an interior mm. will forget that structurally the ceiling might be worth 50% of the composition. Mm. Mm. They're just not getting their money's worth. And they'll get the look without the punch. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any previous fashion trends that came through in architectural photography, just for nostalgia's sake, that that came through that stood out to you as just really, really odd at the time? <laughs> um, well, they Max Dupain always shot with a red filter. Okay. Because a red filter gave him dramatic skies. Now, I try to avoid clouds because. It, a cloud's like a smile. It's it's distracting from reality. But Max loved the the artful cloud and the red filter. 
but a function of that red filter was that the shadows went black because shadows are filled with the blue or cyan colour of the sky and the mm-hmm. red filter blocks it out. So Max's shadows were black and he relied on a composition of form. Um, that was one aesthetic. Um, yeah. In fashion photography there were guys using soft focus filters and out of focus filters and they would last for 12 months and then no art director wanted to touch them. Now it's, it's again, it's back to a compositional aesthetic. Um, yeah. But everything's yeah. in colour these days, so... Uh, yeah, a desaturated compositional aesthetic. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> In terms of some of the things that we discussed today, are there any other thoughts that you just want to get off your chest or get out there or any, <laughs> anything else, we, anything we missed or any, any questions you wish had been asked or anything like that? I have made a, a practice of keeping a copy of every picture I've ever taken, which has given me a, a quite valuable archive. And I'm very conscious now that since I have done most of the really major buildings for the last 40 years or so, I'm conscious that a lot of the current photographers actually aren't keeping record. They can't afford the server. I've got a 500 terabyte server and mm. a backup system uh, and still scanning my analogue archive. So I just think from a professional point of view, whatever photography you employ, they should have the long-term sensibilities that the documentation of architecture is part of the national estate and it's not to be treated lightly. I, I've got massive respect for the literally the documentation that I've done and others before me. That's interesting. And it just, just it does make me think about how little that longer term perspective comes up in the conversation about selecting a photographer or booking in photography. The last thing we're ever talking about is how does this all work together as a group when we look back in 50 years time and you're working on your, you know, your coffee table book or you're putting together your exhibition of your life's work. It doesn't, I don't get the sense, at least from where I sit, that many architects are sort of thinking in that bigger picture way as much in their, in their decision-making these days. No, they don't. The bigger firms realize that they have to start their own visual archive. Mm. Um, and then, of course, they they keep it in CMYK or RGB or just mm. um, low res. I've managed to keep a copy of every raw picture that goes through my camera. Yeah, wow. It, it would take too long to edit them out. And, and I go back and with new aesthetics and new approaches, I sometimes reopen a 10-year-old job and get a totally different look out of it. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm particularly proud of my archive and, and we can deliver stuff urgently that you know no one else can yeah yeah absolutely well that's very interesting john thank you so much for coming on we'll we'll (laughs) let we'll let you go but hopefully uh yeah i would i'd love to have you back on sometime again in the future but thank you so much for doing it and um yeah just telling it sharing your opinion so openly and honestly i appreciate it good on you thanks a lot awesome That was my conversation with John Gollings. If you'd like to learn more about John, you can visit gollings.com.au or follow him on Instagram at John Gollings. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. 